At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying his word together. God created us for community, and with community comes conflict. It seems ever-present in our day-to-day lives, from little things to big things. In today's society, cancel culture is prevalent, and when there's conflict in our lives, it can be easy to turn to the ways of canceling one another. Knowing how to resolve conflict lovingly is an essential component of our lives. When we resolve conflicts out of love, we honor Christ. Join us in our new series, Conflicted, Pursuing Peace in a Cancel Culture, where we'll turn to the Gospel of Matthew to see what Jesus has to say about handling conflict. Today, I want you to grab your Bibles, if you will. Uh, We're going to be landing in Matthew's gospel, and that should not be a surprise to you. Uh, We've been studying through Matthew chapter 18, but I want to start at a different point today. I want to talk to you about why I love the Torah. Um, I love the Torah, uh, the, the Hebrew scriptures, what Christians historically have called our Old Testament. Um, the Torah is, um, is beloved in my heart because Jesus loved the Torah. Jesus saw the Torah as the foundation for all of his teachings. He also saw himself, and scripture bears witness of this, as the fulfillment of the Torah, the embodiment of the Torah, the Messiah who would come to save not not just the Jewish people, but to come to save men and women, uh, no matter what background or tribe or nation you are from, from their sins. You see, Jesus is no ethnic Messiah only. He does not come simply for a narrow, particular group of people, but he comes to save men from their sins. And by doing so, he also embodies for us what God expects from us. Now today, I want to look at what I believe to be the most challenging and the most difficult verse in all of Scripture. Now that's a bold claim, and some of you are saying, how could you say that? Well, I think I can support it. It comes from Micah chapter 6. Micah is what is uh, known as a minor prophet. He's in the Old Testament. For those of you who may have never visited Micah before, don't worry, the words will be on the screen. But he's called a minor prophet not because he has less important things to say than, um, let's just say, Isaiah or Jeremiah or any of the other prophets whose books and words are captured in the Torah, but simply because he has more efficient ways of saying it. He has fewer words that he uses. One of the things that I love about Micah is his economy of words to drive home the holiness of God. And he says these words in chapter 8, and these words have been um, uh, placed on social media. They have been put on T-shirts. They've been posterized. But listen to these words from the prophet Micah. He says this, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. How many have heard these words before? Do justice, love kindness. That word kindness can also be translated as it is in many of your translations as mercy, Loving compassion of God. Love mercy. Do justice. Walk humbly with your God. 
Now, those verse, that verse, those words are easy to read. And if you're not a critical thinker, you'll just simply breeze by it. You'll just summarize it and bottom line it and say, yeah, I just need to be a good person. But notice the tension in the verse. Who among us loves equally justice and mercy? Those verse Jews seem to be at odds with one another. Certainly the cultural moment that we live in seems to pressure or demand that we choose one or the other. That either we choose justice to hold people accountable, to call out bad actors, to say that cruelty and mistreatment and sin is wrong, or to be forgiving, to offer redemption, to want to overlook someone's mistakes in an effort for restoration and grace. This is not only the tension of the text, this is the tension of our culture. And you and I are drawn to one of these virtues more than the other. Let's do a little cultural test for a moment. How many find yourself loving justice, wanting to see people held accountable, wanting to see people not get away with wrongdoing? Come on, raise your hand. I'm going to tell you right now, half of my message today is going to be very offensive to you. (laughs) How many, on the other hand, love mercy? You love showing compassion. You love saying, I forgive you. You love stories of redemption and reconciliation. You watch movies with a box of Kleenex. Raise your hand. (laughs) That's you. All right? Now, I'm just going to warn you. Half my message is going to be terribly offensive to you. Because what Jesus does profoundly on the cross is he does both take sin seriously and takes the passionate pursuit of people seriously. In Christ, he takes accountability seriously and he takes reconciliation seriously. For those of you who are familiar with the cross and you have examined that moment again and again and again. I would argue it's a watershed moment of human history as the son of God dies for the sins of the world. But while he's on that cross taking our sins seriously, he says the most profound statement, Father, forgive them. How do you do that? But we need to ask that question because what Jesus does is not only inaugurate a new religious movement, but he inaugurates a new community of which you and I, who have put our faith in Christ, are a part of. And he tells that new community that you have to embody this, justice and mercy, and it is hard. And what does that look like? Well, I want to show you in Matthew's gospel, chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, and as we delve into this, I'm reminded of what happens when we do live out these virtues. When we don't settle for either justice or mercy, it becomes powerfully persuasive to those who are outside of the Christian community to say, I'd like to learn more or maybe even be a part of that because where else do you find that in the world? But I also am reminded of how Ugly it looks when we prefer either justice or mercy. 
either to adopt the cancel culture of our moment that just ostracizes or boycotts people when conflict happens or adopts an enabling type of forgiveness that's toxic and only sweeps sin under the rug. We have to reject both extremes. I remember it was about 10 years ago, I got a chance to go out to breakfast with a doctor. He was a longtime former atheist who had become a Christian, and I was curious, and he granted me a breakfast meeting with him just so I could ask some questions. And my baseline question was, why? Why? Why were you an atheist for all of those years? To my surprise, his answer was, because of Christians. I was an atheist for all those years because I saw your hypocrisy, the way you treated one another. I saw all of the mean-spirited things done in public by Christians, and I rejected the whole thing. And I thought, fair enough. Then I asked the follow-up question, the obvious follow-up question. So why? Why are you now a Christian? And to my surprise, his answer was, because of Christians. Because when I got a chance to see a healthy community of Christ followers loving one another, encouraging one another, challenging one another, I said, I need that. And I need that forgiveness for my own soul and that community as well. And I could only find that in Christ. So what does that look like? I think it looks like us being countercultural to the world. And in verses 15 through 20 today, we're going to look at the type of community we're supposed to be. What you're going to find here is that Christians, that we're supposed to pursue repentance and reconciliation. And as I said, half of the, the sermon will be offensive to some and the other half to others. He lays out a four-step process for us. Just broader context, in chapter 18, he is uh, explaining patiently to his disciples, this, uh, this first generation of Christ followers, what the community of, um, of believers is supposed to look like. What is a family of faith supposed to look like? And it can all be summed up in that one word, family. It's supposed to look like a spiritual family. Not just a social movement that tries to bring correction to the social structures of our culture. Not just a group of people who loves the same orator or the same music. No, it's supposed to be far deeper than that. That you and I are supposed to see one another as family. And he uses terms to drive that home. One of the terms that he uses so often is, uh, is brothers. And we see this here. Notice that he walks them through several steps on how repentance and reconciliation is supposed to work. The first step is seen in verse number 15. He says these words. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Two concepts jump out from that one verse that you shouldn't lose. They're essential to understanding everything else that he's about to say. They can be summed up in two words, sin and win. Sin and win. Let me first deal with the latter word, win. I love sports. How many love sports out there? How many love sports way too much? 
I had a pastor tell me, uh, ask me on Friday, how are you planning out your Christmas Eve services? I told him the times. He said, well, you're going to be in trouble because the Lions are playing on Christmas Eve. I said, uh-oh, we better rethink some things. <laughs> but we love sports. We all love sports, or many of us do, at least. One of the reasons why I love sports is because winning is so clearly defined in sports. Typically, a win is defined as a person who ends with the most points or wins the most sets or has the fewest strokes. That's what a win is, and everybody knows it. And I think all of us in life should strive for the win. Not just a win and trivial things, but even more importantly, the win and the most important things, our relationship. And notice what the win is defined as here. He says it in these words at the end of that one verse, you have gained your brother. The win in any relationship is not the dissolve of the relationship. It's not walking your own separate ways. This is where Christianity becomes terribly challenging. It's because the normal course of things, the normal course of things in life is that once something goes negative, the trajectory is that it stays negative. Once a relationship goes negative, it typically stays negative. But here we see Jesus saying something different. Just because it goes negative doesn't mean it has to stay negative. That he wants to empower us by his spirit to reconcile and redeem what has been wounded or harmed But let's go back to the first word, sin. Isn't it interesting that he says these words, if your brother. This tells me that this is a communal conversation. That Jesus is not here in this particular passage, in these particular verses, trying to lay out how we ought to treat those outside of the Christian faith. There are other texts and verses for that that are worthy of our consideration that we have looked at and we will again. But yet he is giving us an obligation on how we ought to treat one another. And what witness this will give to those who question the credibility of our faith. Those who say, you talk a good game, but you don't live this out. They have right to say that. Because if I read this text correctly, it's not for theory or philosophy that he gives it to us. It's for the living. It's for you and I to apply this to our relationships. And notice what he says, that when you're in community with other people, even those who profess to be followers of Christ, you will get wounded. Sin will happen. He presupposes it because we're human and we're fallen. And one of the realities of being a fallen human being is that we harm one another. So that means that the lens through which I must see this text is not just concerning the justice I want for when I am harmed, but it's also through the lens of what I owe to others when I harm them. This week, I did a a webinar for professional counselors and pastors on the topic of spiritual abuse, religious trauma, and church hurt. And the reason why I did it is because of a study that came from a research report called The Great Dechurching. It tracks the most significant religious movement in American history as millions have left going to church to no longer attending. And the number one reason given for those who uh, no longer attend is pretty basic. Many of them just moved. 
and didn't find another church to connect to. But the number two reason for 37% of them was because I was hurt by the church. If you're a part of a church or a collection of human beings, you will get hurt. That's the newsflash. But if you're a human being, that also means you will cause hurt as well. And we better have a game plan for that. We can't be so naive, so Pollyanna, that we only plan for the parts of life as if everything works out well. That we only uh, plan in a way that causes us to be prepared if things go perfectly. If you're going to survive life, you better plan for the parts of life that don't go as well. What is your plan for when you are hurt or offended? Because if you don't have a plan, when woundedness comes, you may never recover from that. You may lose your faith. You may lose your relationship with others. You may ultimately lose your soul. So he says, sins will happen. If your brother sins against you, step number one, you go and tell him. Notice that the first step in this whole process with the goal of winning your brother is for you to go directly to him. Now, why is that? It's because Jesus wants us to keep short accounts. He doesn't want offenses to mount up like a volcano and eventually erupts. Now this part of the passage becomes very difficult for those of us, or those of you rather, who are conflict avoiding. I shouldn't add myself in there because one thing I like is a good conflict. But how many by the show of hands are conflict avoided? You don't like conflict. Well, some conflict is good. In particular, when you are confronting someone in hopes of them seeing their sin so that something worse does not happen to them or to you. He says, go to them and go to them directly. This also works to limit gossip as well. It works to limit gossip. Notice that he doesn't instruct you and I that when we are offended to go talk to somebody else or go share with our neighbor or go to the other person within the community. No, he says, go to them now, one of the things, if you're reading this carefully, that you might find counterintuitive is that the onus for going to the person is placed on the individual who was offended. That the individual who was wounded has the responsibility to go to the offender. And that may seem counterintuitive. Why am I the responsible one in this whole exercise? And I think it's because... It matches the character of God. All sin is first an offense against God. And our redemption and our reconciliation and our salvation was initiated by God who was offended because of our sin, our rebellion, our mistreatment, our rejection of his law and his commandments. But yet in his mercy, he pursues us. And if we're going to be his follower, we who are the offended one has the responsibility of going to the person who offended us. But notice we only confront them when there is sin, not the difference of preferences. You're going to have times when you and somebody else disagree stylistically, but that's not sin. You're not going to take everything to a person. A sin is when somebody's in gross violation of God's commands. They're in violation of scripture. Their character is not in keeping with the gospel. It's in those moments that you have to go to them. I think the Christian church has often been 
broken up because of pettiness over preferences. How many have ever heard churches split up over music before? Music styles. Now, no doubt you got your own music style. I got mine as well. But your music style and somebody else's is just like your favorite flavor of ice cream. It's your preference. Chocolate is not better than vanilla. After all, strawberry ice cream is the best. Everybody knows this. Oatmeal raisin cookies are far better than chocolate chip cookies. Everybody knows this. This is gospel. <laughs> but we all have preferences. My, my, the violation of my preferences or my style is not why I'm going to a brother. I'm going to a brother or a sister because they violated scripture. They've disobeyed God. Their character is not in keeping with the commands of Christ, with the teachings of the gospel. And I'm going to them not to one-up them, not to be able to say, I'm right, you're wrong, now repent and apologize. But I'm going to them, yes, I'm wounded, but even more importantly, I want relationship with you. And not only do I want relationship with you, I want you to have relationship with God. And your current trajectory is endangering both Everybody following along with me? And notice what happens. If he listens to you, you've won a brother. Everybody clap for that. Praise God. That's the goal. That's the win. And we got to celebrate the win. It's being restored in relationship. But what do you do if he does not listen? Well, you go to verse 16, step number two. After you have gone for the win personally, you have to go to win communally. Look at verse number 16. But if he does not listen. This is talking about a person who is clear about their sin. They've been warned about their behavior. They've been told that if you don't correct this, something more is going to have to happen. But yet they re remain obstinate in heart, resistant in their behavior. And so, if that happens, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. This sounds terribly legal in, in language, and it's because it is. If you read the Torah, you will find many examples of the uh, ancient Jewish Law requiring that every accusation be established by two or three witnesses. You see, the first step is an endeavor by God and by the person to say, let's not, let's not let this go public. Let's keep this as private as we can because we don't want the testimony of the community to be harmed. How many by the show of hands are grateful that God handles the vast majority of your mistakes between you and him privately? How many thank God for that? The vast majority of my attitudinal problems, the vast majority of my mistakes, God handles between me and him privately. But sometimes when I ignore his warnings, when I don't heed his cautions, when I'm too committed to my sin, when sin becomes my addiction, he will love me enough to involve others. Now there are some assumptions built into these two or three witnesses. The first is that they are nonpartisan in this whole ordeal, that they're neutral, that their only commitment is to the goal of the win, 
to ultimately see the person reconciled to one another, the persons reconciled to one another, or reconciled to God. It's not you getting some buddies who are there simply to gang up on another person, but it's you inviting two people who are mature in their faith, who understand what the win is, to say we need to go and confront this together. Now, there's many benefits to doing this this way, this step number two. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, great theologian who wrote his most famous book in 1939, it's called Life Together, lists three benefits of taking one or two others along with you. Number one, the benefit to the accused. It protects a brother against a false accusation. The assumption is sometimes you and I make mistakes. Sometimes we assume somebody's been offensive when they haven't even tried to be offensive, didn't know they were offensive, and maybe even didn't uh, attempt to violate scripture at all. You ever have a person walk by you and not say hello and got offended by it? How many have experienced that before? Every single one of us. Ever considered that they may have been in deep thought? Or maybe they're just 6'6 and tall, looking straight ahead. That's just a random example. It's hard to see some things. But sometimes a false accusation arises, and there's a protection against that. Bring another person or two who can investigate the matter to see whether or not it is legitimate. And if it is, they have protected against a false accusation. Number two. This is for the, the accuser. To help, a, I'm sorry, this is also for the accused. To help a brother to see his legitimate sin. Sometimes I can't hear or see when one person comes to me what I can when another person comes to me. How many have ever or are currently raising a teenager? How many have ever experienced when a teenager comes to you and shares something that they found to be absolutely profound that somebody else just shared with them that you have been telling them for years? (laughs) Anybody ever experienced that before? And they're telling you, like, this is new information. This just came as manna from heaven. And you're sitting there thinking, ain't this a trip? (laughs) I've been telling you this for years. But I'm just glad you got it. Sometimes we need another person's point of, uh, a point of view or perspective to help us to see what we could not see when the first person came to us. The third benefit is for the public community is to bear public witness if the matter has to be brought before the entire church. Sometimes if a person refuses to repent, things have to escalate and go even further. But again, notice what what the goal is. Notice that the goal is not for it to spread any further than it has to, but to try to bring healing at every stage possible, which leads to the third step. If a person's behavior after warning continues, their pattern of sin continues, and you've gone personally, and you've brought one or two witnesses, then the next stage, which is terribly uncomfortable, is seen in verse number 16, I'm 17 rather. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And this isn't easy. And this is painful. 
And it's painful because of verse number 15. It's because they are a brother or a sister. And there have been times throughout my pastoral journey when something has to be brought before the community. And it's typically with many tears before, maybe even during, certainly after, because of your deep love for the person. But why do you do it? The only motivation is the win. It is the hope that this will be addressed so that an even worse thing would not happen. That this will be addressed before even further damage is done to yourself, to other relationships, to your own soul. And so you do, and the community has to bear the weight of that. But notice that when you sign up to be a follower of Christ, it is no privatized thing that you get a relationship with Jesus and you don't have to worry about other people. That's not the Christian faith. The Christian faith is that you are brought into community and as a community, we have an obligation to one another. So what do you do when you find out that a husband and wife are at odds with one another? Do you gossip about it? Do you simply say, oh, well, there goes another one? Or do you work as a community to help to restore them? A brother or sister are at odds with one another. Do you help to restore them? Notice our obligation to one another is that we are duty-bound to help to restore relationships that have been broken. Not by sacrificing accountability. No, true accountability has to precede redemption. But by holding on to both repentance and reconciliation, we reflect the character of Christ. What if they won't listen to the entire church? He says, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. If he refuses to listen even to the church, cut off community. Notice this uh, thought of treating him like a tax collector or a Gentile is the ultimate level of church discipline. It is to say you are no longer welcome in community. At every one of these previous stages, they still had community. And this is to tell me and you that one of the greatest gifts God gives to us is community. As I stand here today, I recognize that I would not be before you if it wasn't for the loving community of the body of Christ. Been married for 26 years to the same amazing and beautiful woman, but that would not have happened if it wasn't for the couples and the community that's been around us to help us along the way. From the time that we were 20 and got married as kids, not knowing much, to this moment now, it's been loving community that's helped us along the way. It's been a community that's edified me and fed me. And for many of you, you'll understand what I'm about to say, that there are times when the community of faith is as close, if not closer, than my biological family. Anybody ever experienced that before? So it's with that blessing in mind that any threat of excommunication should be seen. John Calvin, the great reformer, living in Geneva, Switzerland in the 16th century, said that, the most severe thing we can do in dealing with sin is to disallow a brother or sister to participate in communion. We do that once a month. 
And communion is an observance that is meant to bear witness to our union with Christ and our community, our communion with one another. To disallow a brother or sister to participate in that is to say that you're cut off. But not cut off from his grace. But the hope is the sting of that. The sting of being cut off from the community. The sting of that will be such a warning to your soul that you'll deal with the character failures, that you'll deal deal with the sin patterns, that you will truly repent and not blame shift and not excuse away your own failure so that you can be right with God and be a redemptive voice to help to prevent the brokenness of others. And then he says these words, truly I say to you in verse number 18, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. These verses have been so misinterpreted over the years. These verses don't refer to... um, prayer as much as they refer to who the church allows in community or does not allow into community. The binding and loosing has to do with permitting or not permitting somebody into fellowship. And what Christ is saying is that when a brother's in sin and the community has disallowed them to be in fellowship, he is present to reinforce that. And when they allow him to be in fellowship because of true repentance, he endorses that and he is present and among that. And when you come together, know that I am in the midst. And that should give us a holy reverence and fear to live in honor of his word, which means to love him with all of our hearts and to love one another. I could share so much more about this passage, but I want you to see one thing as we all stand. I want you to see the great patience through which Christ commands us to pursue one another. To not so easily walk away from one another. And that, my friends, is a reflection of his great patience towards you and me. He is in hot pursuit of you. And maybe today you sense that God has been drawing you. I would love to get a chance to shake your hand if you had questions about Christianity. But I would call you to respond, not just to be hearers, but to respond to the word of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your promise. Thank you for your truth. I pray, Lord, that we would live in light of it, that we would be a loving community that honors grace, mercy, and accountability. Help us to love one another well. And as we go into Thanksgiving week, help us to love our family and friends well. Until all have heard, until Christ returns. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.